The Lord has told us what is good. The Lord has told us what he requires of us. Do you see? To act justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with God. Do you see justice? A world where all are equal, a backwards kingdom where the last are first, and the heavy hand has been lifted off the oppressed? Do you see mercy? Are the bellies of the hungry fed? Are the heads of the homeless dry? Have you given clothes to those in need? Do you see humility? For when it is found, there your light shall break and appear like the early morning sun. Your righteousness will go before you, and you will rest in God's glory. This Christmas season, do you see? Well, good morning. It's good to have you here in Bellingham. Those of you in Skagit, glad to have you with us uh, with Pastor Brian there in Boca Raton at the Trinity Church. Good to have you in joining. And those who are watching online, uh, streaming live right now, it's good to have you with us. I was a part of your community last week, was able to watch uh, streaming online while I was on vacation. I just want you to know, if you're watching online right now, we're very grateful that you've joined us. Our great desire is that you would get connected and plugged into a local body of believers. If you're here in Whatcom or Skagit County, we'd love to have you join us. If not, find a church that preaches the Word of God and lifts up the name of Jesus and honors God and join that church. That is so important uh, in your spiritual journey. Um, if you did not uh, receive or pick up one of the Advent scratch-off calendars last weekend, I'd encourage you to pick one up today. Every single day, there's a, you can scratch it off. There's an activity for you or for your family or for your small group or your friends and a scripture to read as well. And with some of these activities, if you want to take a picture of you or your group doing that and then post it either to Instagram or Facebook, use the hashtag SeeChristmas and we can all enjoy that. But those are available after the service. Uh, last week I was not here. My wife and I were on vacation, and we were in in Hawaii. And um, on last Sunday, um, after uh, while being in Hawaii, after a very dismal day of watching the Seahawks, actually, I needed to kind of get my head back into a good space and clear my mind and stuff. So I went for a walk. And I don't know about you last Sunday, but I went for my walk in shorts and a tank top. I don't know what it was like here. So I was walking and, and just um, just down from. Um, uh, I don't know, ka, uh, pa, uh, something, a uh, beach. There's a, a K and a bunch of A's and a P, and it, it's a, uh, I, I can't remember what it's called. But anyway, there's this, there's this, this beach walk. It's about three miles of sidewalk between the ocean and all of these different hotels. And as I'm walking along, as the sun is setting, and I'm in my tank top and my shorts, I'm walking past these hotels, and most of them have restaurants out on the beach side, open air restaurants. And many of these restaurants have live music. And so as we go past each one of these hotels, there'd be a different band or a different group or different uh, instrumentalists. And going past one of the hotels, there was a man playing slack key guitar. You may have never heard that term. If you heard, if I played some, not that I can play it, if I played a recording of someone playing slack key guitar, you would recognize, oh, that's a very Hawaiian sound. You would recognize the sound. And so he's playing slack key guitar. And he's singing Christmas carols, which is kind of cool. You'd expect, you know, uh, Mele Kaliki Maka or whatever that song is. But the problem was, he was singing Winter Wonderland. 
And as I'm walking along in shorts and a tank top, and he's playing a slack key guitar in Hawaii at sunset, and he's playing in the meadow, we can build a snowman. It just didn't work. I'm thinking, yeah, what, with coconuts? You can't build a snowman here. And it was just out of place. Now, the reason I tell you that is not to make you jealous, though if that happened, good. But the reason I'm telling you that is because we're starting this series that leads us up to Christmas, and we're going to be looking at one of the minor prophets. And some of you know enough about the prophets to say, wait a second, this seems out of place. Because Christmas is this time of cheer and of joy, the most wonderful time of the year, a holly jolly Christmas. And usually the prophets come along and they have this heavy message, this message of gloom, of, of in, ensuing you know, destruction or, or punishment or judgment. And so how does that fit with Christmas? And we're going to be looking in the book of Micah. Now I will say this, the prophet Micah actually does make his way into the Christmas story. Because some of you remember when the Magi, three wise men, whatever, came from the east to find this king that was born of the Jews. They went to Herod, who was greatly troubled, and saying, where's this child to be born? Where's this king to be born? And Herod sent some guys to find this out, and they quoted Micah. Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says, But you, Bethlehem, we know that from the Christmas story, Ephrathah, whatever that is, though you are small among the clans of Judah, out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old, from ancient times. This is in Micah. Now, we're not going to spend any time looking at this verse. I just wanted to tell you that the prophets are in the Christmas story. So we'll leave that alone and we'll go forward. This series uh, we've entitled, Do You See? Some of you are astute enough to know they stole that from a song. You're correct. That phrase said the night wind to the little lamb. Do you see what I see? A star dancing in the night with a tail as big as a kite. You, you know the song. So we chose that, that title, Do You See? And hopefully, hopefully you'll see how it ties into the series a little bit later. What I didn't know was the history and the back, the back story of that song. And you may not know it either. A familiar song, it was written in 1962, like way before I was born. <laughs> Eight months or so before I was born. And a record company came to a man, his name's Noel uh, Regney, I think is his name. They came to Noel and they said, would you write a Christmas song for this coming season, for Christmas uh, uh, 1962? And he really struggled. He had this, this tension that he was dealing with because he really hated the commercialism of Christmas. And on top of that, some of you will remember this from your history books, some of you will remember it from real life. There was right in the middle of that time this Cuban Missile Crisis. And to think about writing a joyful Christmas song when there's imminent danger just 90 miles south out in the water there in Cuba that could spark a nuclear disaster that would wipe out the human race. How could you go into a Christmas thinking everything is fine, everything is normal, it's business as usual? And he just couldn't do that, so he wrote the song. That's why the last verse of the song said, The king to the people everywhere, listen to what I say. Pray for peace, people everywhere. He wrote the song because of this, rush, this uh, Cuban missile crisis that was imminent right there. And as he writes this, as I was thinking about that, he was like this voice of the prophets saying, Don't go into this Christmas season thinking everything's wonderful. Don't you see? Do you see? Open your eyes. Wake up. There's this crisis right on the shores. And that was what the prophets would do. They would come to people who were just going through life business as usual, and they say, wake up. Do you see? Open your eyes. If we don't get back on track, there's this imminent danger looming over us. And Paul himself, when he writes to the church in Ephesus, he writes these words, 
But I pray, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. Do you see? Wake up. See the reality of things. See how dark it is. See how it can be. See the hope that is waiting for us. Do you see? And so we're going to be looking at this in one specific verse out of the book of Micah. If you want to follow along, you can turn to Micah chapter 6. We will eventually get there. I say eventually. Because I'm going to give you some backdrop and some historical context for this. But we will eventually get to Micah chapter 6. Now about Micah. Micah was a prophet. And he lived... And uh, his ministry season was about 750 to 700 B.C. He had two other contemporary prophets that were during that same time. You may have heard of Isaiah as well as Hosea. They were all in the same time period. Very strong chance that they knew each other. Possibility that they had worked together a bit. And during this season, Assyria is the reigning world power. Assyria invokes terror on every state and every nation around. Assyria just rules everything. During this season, it's another dark chapter in Israel's history. There are many of them. In fact, there's kind of this repeated cycle that they go through. This was a dark season in their lives. The kingdom had been divided 200 years earlier with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. There was the northern kingdom and there was the southern kingdom. Ten tribes to the north. The northern kingdom was referred to as Israel and its capital was Samaria. Two tribes to the south was referred as, as Judah and its capital was Jerusalem. So, little side note. If you read the book of Micah, which I would encourage you to in this series, it's only seven chapters long. He'll talk about Samaria and Jerusalem, but he's not just talking about individual towns. He's talking about the capitals of the two kingdoms. He's saying these are the seat of power when it'd be like talking about Washington, D.C. It's like this is, this is what rules you know, the nation. And so in all of this, Micah comes and he brings this word. He brings a word to God's people. They were supposed to be a holy nation. Holy, remember, means literally set apart. They were supposed to be different than every other nation on the planet. And yet over the years, as had often been the case, they had moved into this rut where they were just like everybody else. The country was just plagued with materialism. Comfort was their highest priority. And in the country, amongst themselves, there was oppression, there was injustice, there was exploitation, and there was corruption. And for Micah, one of the big themes is this thing of the injustice. In fact, he uses an even more strong phrase. Injustice could be stuff happens and we just turn kind of our head and we don't look at it. He says, you have perverted justice. Like you have intentionally done things in the name of justice that is awful. And the corruption. And it wasn't just the people of the country. It was the leaders. Again, you may be familiar with the titles of the leaders. There were prophets, priests, and kings. And the corruption had made its way even into the leadership. These people that were supposed to be the godly leaders to lead these people to God, they had become corrupt. So Micah writes in Micah 3.11, her leaders judge, her kings, her magistrates, her leaders judge for a bribe. You can buy them off. You have enough money, you can get whatever you want. Her priests, these are the godly ones. Her priests teach for a price. They'll, they'll, they'll come and they'll give you the word, but you're going to have to pay for it. You're going to pony up on this one. And her prophets tell fortunes for money. You pay them enough, they'll tell you what you want to hear. It might not be the word of God, but, but they'll say, hey, you know, we'll, we'll tell you that. And, and this whole thing, pun somewhat intended, there is no longer a not-for-profit business. I mean, these guys were doing this for profit. What mate matters worse. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, is not the Lord among us? 
Am I not the Lord's anointed? I'm the king, I'm the priest, I'm the prophet. Look, God's hand is on me, of course. No disaster will come upon us. Are you kidding me, Micah says. You know, there's this danger just offshore. And what you have here is the blind leading the blind. No one sees what's going on. No one understands the truth. No one knows the reality. Not only do they not know it, they don't want to hear it. I know this one's going to date me a little bit, but in 1987, Fleetwood Mac came out with a song, Tell Me Lies, Tell Me Sweet Little Lies. And that's what Israel was saying to their priests, to their prophets. Tell us lies. We don't want to hear the truth. We want to hear what makes us feel good. And in fact, Micah refers to this, Micah chapter 2, verse 11. He says, if a liar and deceiver comes and says, I will prophesy, like there's a known guy who's lying and deceiving. He says, let me be your prophet. I will prophesy for you. Plenty of wine and beer. He would be just the prophet for this people. That's what they want. That's our prophet. We like him. Can't trust him, but we like him. They said, you don't want to hear the truth. You want to come to your gathering and you want it to be happy hour. You want your prophet to be your bartender. You want him to take the edge off, not to give you the cutting edge of truth. And this was the context of how how far this nation had strayed away from God. And in the midst of this whole context, there's this voice, Micah, this voice, like like a voice crying in the wilderness. And he comes speaking the truth, and it's not a popular thing. No one ever said as a child, I want to grow up and be a prophet. It was not an occupation you pursued. It was a calling that God put on you, and it was a heavy, heavy burden. It was not a fun occupation. And very often we kind of categorize the, the voice of the prophet as turn or burn. Like they're these angry, judgmental, condemning individuals. They spoke only the words of God. And while the truth may have been very painful... It came from a fierce love, the dire warning, and a great, great concern that unless you get things back on track, there will be discipline, there will be punishment, there will be condemnation for the purpose of bringing you back in line with God because he loves you so much. And so Micah speaks this this message, in essence, turn or burn. And what's amazing, history would show that some would turn and some would burn. The northern kingdom did not pay attention to his message. And in 722 B.C., the Assyrians came in, took over the northern kingdom, dispersed the ten tribes, and never again did they come back together the way they were. The southern kingdom, however, especially under the rule of Hezekiah, Hezekiah heard Micah's message, and he listened to it, and it struck him. He says, we've got to do something. And a great revival came around in the southern kingdom, and God spared them because of that. And then you get to this book of Micah. A quick overview. The first couple of chapters, Micah gives this warning. The next few chapters, he talks about God's promises, that God is sovereign and he is in control and he will make things right. And then he gets to chapter 6, and this is where we're going to focus. In chapter 6, Micah serves as a prosecuting attorney on God's behalf against God's people. And at the beginning of chapter 6, he calls court into session. In fact, he calls a couple uh, uh, witnesses as well. And then he builds the case against God's people. And here's the case. In essence, God has been faithful. God has blessed you. God has been good to you. God has done everything he said he would do. God has been an amazing God to you. And you have forgotten and you have walked away. 
To which their rebuttal, in verse 6, their rebuttal was, what, wait, 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 what are you talking about? We, we don't even know, before you get so upset, we don't even know what you want. And what's interesting, and this is where we're going to pick up, is that as they begin to make their case, their rebuttal against God, you see this, this escalation as they kind of go through this list. Okay, now we're going. Micah 6, verse 6. With what shall we come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Like, we don't even know what you expect, God. This, you know, this isn't fair. Hold on a second. Before you judge us or condemn us, what do you want? And then they kind of just start going through this list. Shall I come before him with, with burnt offerings? Well, that had been pretty clearly marked out in the scriptures. And this was a thing. It was set up that anyone and everyone could do it. No matter how wealthy they were, there was, there was uh, you know, provisions made that everyone could come with a burnt offering. And then they take it up a step. Or, or with calves a year old. Now, not everybody could do that. Not everybody had livestock. Not everybody could afford that. So if that's what God is requiring, there's some people that aren't going to be able to meet the requirement. And then they take it the next step. Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams? I mean, like, who could do that? You'd have to be extremely wealthy. And they're most likely pointing to Solomon because in 1 Kings chapter 3, we read where Solomon made a thousand sacrifices in one day. And they're probably talking about, like, who has the wealth of Solomon? Only Solomon could do that. And then they take it even further. With 10,000 rivers of oil, like this is unimaginable. There's no king that has ever been able to provide that. No one would be able to do that. And they go even one step further. Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? There's about three ways you can interpret that. One, they could have been pointing back to the example of Abraham being willing to sacrifice Isaac, which would have been honorable. Or two... They could have been saying, okay, all the other nations, the pagan nations, their gods required child sacrifice. Is that what you're talking about? Which obviously the answer was no. Or, in their ignorance and in efforts to excuse and justify themselves, they inadvertently prophesied the greatest gift that would ever be given to this world. That this God, who was so good to them, would actually do this, be unthinkable, to give his son for their sins. Now, we can give them the benefit of the doubt and say they genuinely are willing to please God. They just don't know. They're asking God, okay, show us what it is. That would be very generous on our part. I think the reality is this, if you read it in the context, the reality is they're trying to justify and rationalize and excuse their life away. They're trying to somehow get out from underneath this pressure of saying, hey, listen, how can, we, how can you hold us accountable for what we don't even know what we're supposed to do? That's not fair, God. Why, you can't do that to us. And if you set the bar this high, none of us, if you set this bar this high, some of us can't do it. So that's not fair to hold us accountable. If you're asking us to do something you know we can't do, that's not fair either. And the sad part is this, that they have drifted so far from God they don't even know what he wants anymore. They don't know his desires. They don't even know what pleases him. They just kind of go through life. I referenced Paul um, writing his letter to the church in Ephesus. He says this in Ephesians 5.10. He says, and find out what pleases the Lord, which would be a really good thing for us to occasionally just stop and say, you know what? 
what I'm doing in my life, am I doing that just because I'm going through motions? Am I doing that just as some kind of a religious ritual? Am I just checking this off? Does this really please the Lord? What, what is it that really pleases the Lord? And they had drifted so far from that. And then we get, we get to this verse. And this is the verse that we're going to spend three weeks on. And in this verse, there's, there's really three pieces. There's a statement that God makes through Micah. There's a question that he asks, and then he answers the question. And we're going to look at this, and this is where we're going to camp. Micah chapter 6, verse 8. This is a great verse to memorize. Um, some of you already know it. But this is what he says. He says, He has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? That's the statement, and that's the question. Now let's slow down a little bit. You remember what they had said. Hey, God, we don't even know what you want. You know, is it rivers of oil? Is it burnt offerings? We don't know. And God reminds him, hey, he has showed you. Not like he's going to or he is currently past tense. This, I don't know what you expect, is not a good excuse. They had the law, and they loved the law. The law of the Lord is perfect. They had the prophets. They had the history. They knew God. They knew what their, their, their nation had done. They knew all of that. So he said, don't come to me saying you don't know. He has showed you. And then this is interesting. Oh, man. Now, while this, this message is going out to the entire nation, he uses this singular, oh, man. And I think this is what, what we can gain from this. Because when he's talking about the nation as a whole, he talk about Israel. He'll talk about Judah. He'll talk about the house of Jacob. He'll even use Zion. But on this one, he says, oh man. And he says, listen, you can't hide behind the nation should have done this. Our leaders are responsible. He said, every single one of you, as individuals, you knew. You know. And you're responsible as well. You know what's good. And then he asks this question. And what does the Lord require of you? Now, I don't know if you've ever, those of you who have had teenagers, have ever had a conversation like this. It usually is on a Saturday or a Sunday afternoon. And it's after a child, a teenage child, has asked to use the car to go out with friends the night before. This is how the conversation goes. I know for a fact. The conversation goes like this. Now, son or daughter, whatever it might be, yesterday we sat down and we talked. And we determined what time you were to be home last night. And if that was a problem, you were going to call. This is what we had discussed. This. We had talked about this. What time did we say you were going to... What time did we agree yesterday? The When were you supposed to be... When did you say you would be home last night? And did you or did you not say that you would call if that wasn't going to happen? Now, I know none of you have ever had that conversation but I think that's the conversation God's having with his people. Hey, listen, you know what we've talked about. You understand that. You, you know from the law, you know from the prophets, you know from the history, you know from all of that what I have said. Now, now let me just be clear. Let me ask you, and what is it that I require of you? Now, he knows this, and they know it too. What I find interesting here is he doesn't say, and, and what, is, what is my preference in these kind of situations? 
You know, what would cause me to say, you know, I really appreciate you doing that? What are the things that I kind of wish you would do just naturally? No, he says, and what do I require? God doesn't just desire, but requires this of his people. He says, listen, you know that this isn't just kind of take it or leave it, optional equipment, if you're just feeling particularly spiritual one day. You know this isn't just for the leaders. You know this isn't just for everybody else. You know this this is essential. This is necessary. This is non-negotiable. And then, just to make sure, he clears away any, any uncertainty, clears away any confusion, and he takes away every excuse. Remember they said, we don't know, and if this is it, we can't do it. He says, I'm going to let you know very clearly what I expect, what I require, and every single one of you are responsible for this, and every single one of you can do this. So this is what he says. He has showed you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. You know, I think about when Samuel, in 1 Samuel, God says, um, do you think I'm pleased with your burnt sacrifices? You think your offerings delight me? And then he says, to obey is better than sacrifice. I don't want your burnt animals. You know, all the things that they had listed off were these religious rituals. And look at the depth of what he's asking for. I want the way you live your life. I want the things that are dear to your heart. I want your relationship. Your deeds, your motives, your life. That's what this whole thing of, you know, when, hey, I killed a lamb, burned it up for you, and you missed it completely. This is what I want. Now, there's a young man in our church, brilliant young man. His name's Harrison, Harrison Jones. And he is currently um, pursuing a master's degree in theology uh, through Fuller Theological Seminary. And Harrison, in his, in his, uh, education is required to take passages of scripture and break them down and pull out different things. And as he's been doing this over the last several years, suddenly one day it struck him that a shortcut to theology, a great way for insight, is when you're looking at a passage of scripture, is to concentrate and focus on the verbs. Because the verbs make it really clear who's saying what, who's asking what, what are we supposed to do with this. So I was asking him about that, that whole process. And he says, you know, it's, it's a simple way to get theology because, you know, this is what we're supposed to do. And then he made this statement. He says, you know, as far as insights in Scripture, he says, for me, the verbs are the bridge. Here's God's Word. Here's the Scripture. If I concentrate on the verbs, it helps me know how does this apply to me. You know, so I look at a scripture, I read it, I study it, I tear it apart, and then I come to this conclusion. So what, now what? The verbs tell me the so what, now what? And this whole idea is, is, what, um, is what James was getting at in, in James chapter 1, where it, it says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Verbs, do what it says. Do what it says. See, it's not just about information, it's about transformation. I hope you know that. Our desire for you to be reflecting on Scripture, to study Scripture in a small group, to hear Scripture in the weekend service, is not just to fill your head with more knowledge. 
It's that we'd be transformed by the renewing of our mind that the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a double-edged sword. Changes how we think, how we live, how we feel, our motives, everything about our lives. That's the goal. Not to just become the winner of the Bible quizzing contest. No offense to those winners of Bible quizzing contests. But it's that there would be a change. There would be a transformation in our lives. That something would be happening in here, moving from acknowledgement to action, that our beliefs, our beliefs would live out in our behavior, that the things that we believe, our theology, the, the knowledge that we have would bring about a change in our behavior and that our spiritual landscapes would be altered, that we would be different, that we would be transformed. That's the whole purpose of it. So, so we go back to this. It says, he showed you, O oh man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? And the first one, and there's three of these, and this is the framework for our three-week series leading up, but the first one, and I'm not sure if it's a matter of priority or of importance, but the first one, he says, is to act justly. Some of your translations will say, to do justice. And I just want to say one thing really, really clear right now. No pun intended in the statement I'm going to make, but this theme of justice is such an enormous theme that pervades all of Scripture. Here's the phrase. I cannot, humanly not possible, I cannot do justice to the theme of justice in our time remaining today. I cannot do justice to the biblical theme of justice in this series. This, this theme of justice warrants an entire series on its own, which you'll probably get in the next year or two. But for some of you are saying, well, we need to study this more. For those of you who are saying, let's go deeper with this. Let me offer you a resource until I preach a sermon series on it. Uh, there's a book by Timothy Keller called Generous Justice. Fantastic book on this theme. It's very biblically based. It's very balanced. And it's very practical. So for some of you who are saying, I really want to go deeper with this justice thing. I want to learn more. I want to hear what God's word says. What's the Old Testament say? What does Jesus say? How does it apply to my life? I would highly recommend this book. Um, we don't sell it here. You can pick it up at, I don't know, Amazon, wherever, but there it is. But let's spend a little bit of time scratching the surface of this theme of justice. Justice, the, word, the, the Hebrew word mishpat, uh, has a lot, of, a lot of complexity and some nuances to it. But if you boiled it down, like to the irreducible minimum, it means to treat people equitably. To treat people equitably. That's justice. And what's amazing is, in Scripture, while treating everyone equitably is across the board, most often it is used in relationship with those who are vulnerable, those who are voiceless, don't have a say, those who don't have power, kind of the least, the last, the lost, that whole deal. And specifically, in Scripture, there's four categories of people that it's most often referred to. Widows, orphans, the third category is foreigners, aliens, and immigrants, and then the poor. Because most often, those are the groups that are oppressed, that are abused, that are taken advantage of, and then experience injustice. And justice is treating people equitably. Maybe you've seen the, the picture of Lady Justice and she usually has a sword in her hand to mete out justice and the scales to, you know, the process. But most often, Lady Justice has a blindfold. 
real obvious what that means, is that justice ought to have objectivity. That there would be justice given no matter if it's a male or a female. They would be treated the same, no matter if they're educated or uneducated. They'd be treated the same. No matter if they're wealthy or poor, they'd be treated the same. No matter if they're healthy or sick or with disabilities, they would be treated the same. No matter what their skin color, no matter what their race, no matter what their religion, no matter what their orientation, that they would be treated the same, that there would be objectivity. And this whole thing of justice is to treat people created in the image of God as valued individuals equally. And it's like I said, there's so much behind us, so much that we could go into. And what happens for us so often is we think, well, okay, well, I'm not going to exploit somebody and I'm not going to, you know, take advantage of the vulnerable. And so we say, so I'm going to not do injustice, which is a good thing, good thing. But it's kind of passive. It's about what I'm not going to do. The whole theme of justice in Scripture is not just what we don't do, but it's speaking up and standing up and acting on behalf of those who are being oppressed, who are being abused, who don't have a voice. This act justly is not just, you know, don't act unjustly. It's do something about injustice in this world. And here's the amazing thing, and this is why it's so important to God, is that justice reflects God's character. It reflects his character. That's why I think he puts us at the top of the list. This is what I require. This is what I, I expect of my people. Because I am a God of justice. Now, I don't want to confuse you, but 100 years after Micah, there's another prophet named Jeremiah. And Jeremiah has this phrase that he says in his book where he says, listen, if you're going to boast, don't boast about your wisdom. And don't boast about your strength. And don't boast about your wealth. And I find it interesting that he uses those three because most often it's the educated, the powerful, and the wealthy who exploit and oppress. Not exclusively, but that's most often the case, especially in the Old Testament, but even today. He says, don't boast about how wise and educated you are. Don't boast about how strong and powerful you are. Don't boast about how much money and how much wealth you have. He says this, if you're going to boast, let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who, and look at the verbs here, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth, for in these I I delight. You want to boast about something? Boast that you know God and boast that you understand his character. And his character is this, that he not only delights, but he exercises. He actively pursues. He is a God of justice on earth, even as it is in heaven. Sound familiar? And sometimes we think, well, you know, I'm kind of above some of this because of my education, because of my power, because of my position, because of my money. Well, are you greater than God? In Deuteronomy, it says this. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. God says, like father, like son. Like father, like daughter. I'm the God of justice. 
It's what I require of you. That's what's good. That's what pleases me. Most of you are familiar with Job. You're familiar with his suffering. Job went through more than, oh man, I can't even imagine. Some of you are familiar with Job because of a statement his wife made, which caused, I'm sure, some problems in their home. You might be familiar with Job because of his righteousness, uh, because of his unwavering trust in God. Most people don't equate Job and justice. But Job was a man of great justice. If you're familiar with the book of Job, he goes through this horrible stuff, and his friends come to help him, to console him, and they're convinced that he's done something wrong and that God's ticked off and getting back at him. And he says, guys, I, I haven't sinned. I, I don't know what you think I've done, but I, I haven't. And it's not like being prideful and boastful. He's just saying, no, I've, I've lived my life as a righteous man, which later God would confirm and say, you guys were wrong, he was right. But when he's defending his own cause, saying, listen, let me tell you about the life I've lived. I, I don't have some hidden sin. I haven't done some horrible thing. He also says this, I rescued the poor who cried for help. The fatherless who had none to assist him. You know, these orphans, I helped them out. The man who was dying blessed me. Why? Because I helped him when he was sick and dying. And I made the widow's heart sing. Why? Because she didn't have a protector. She didn't have a provider. I stood up for her. I, I, I was there for her. I put on righteousness as my clothing. Look at this. Justice as my robe and my turban. So justice was something I put on every single day. I never left the house without putting on justice. I went through my day surrounded with justice. I had always on my mind, how can I live justice? It clothed me. It defined me. It covered me. I lived a life of justice, he says. I was eyes to the blind, and I was feet to the lame. I helped them out. I was a father to the needy. I took up the case of the stranger. I love this. I broke the fangs of the wicked and snatched the victims from their teeth. I took on systemic ills and evils in our society and I rescued people from them. So I lived a life of justice. Some of you are familiar with Gary Haugen, founder of International Justice Mission. They do incredible work in this world uh, of especially uh, young women who've been exploited in sex trafficking, but, but beyond that, in humanitarian efforts, doing amazing work. And Gary Haugen said this, I mean, just the very name of his organization, International Justice Mission. He said this, God has a plan to fight injustice. And that plan is us, his people. That's God's plan. There is injustice in this world. And it needs to be confronted. It needs to be conquered. And it's us. Earlier this year, I, in one of my sermons, I spent uh, a fair amount of time distinguishing the difference between Marvel Comics and DC Comics. And I won't go into that again for some of you. Um, but in DC Comics, there's this group called the Justice League. And in the Justice League, there's this gathering of superheroes with differing powers. And together, you know, they find greater strength. In fact, there's a movie in 2017 coming out about this. Together, they find greater strength to take on and to right the wrongs in this world, to, to conquer the ills of society and, the, and the, the evil that is running rampant. 
Well, it appears that this is not a new concept, that DC Comics actually stole this from the Bible. Because God has a justice league. And it's made up of men and women who have different gifts and different passions and different abilities and different hearts. And as they, as they work on behalf of the widow, of the orphan, of the poor, of the discarded, of the marginalized, to those individuals, they become superheroes. And God says, this is my Justice League, my people, my followers. This verse, Micah 6.8, I learned a song with this verse when I was in high school in our youth group. I have known this verse word for word for decades. And a couple years ago, in our pastor team, we were talking about this verse, and, it, and here's this, the truth for me. When it comes to these things, I know what it means to walk humbly with God. I'm not saying I always do it, but I know what it means. I think I have a pretty good grasp. My arms around this whole thing of loving mercy. I think I get that. I don't always love mercy. I don't always practice that, but I think I get it. But the one that I have wrestled with over the years is doing justice, acting justly. I mean, what does that look like? How does that play out? How do I do that? And not just understanding it on a theological level, on a philosophical level. What does that mean for me? And I've wrestled with this. What does it mean for me to, to do justice? Because I don't think that I have the capacity or even the heart or the ability or the calling at this point to overthrow some big sex trafficking ring in Cambodia. That's probably not what's going to happen with me. So what does it mean for living this out? And it's been a struggle, a tension. I don't know. I mean, there's some things I think, and then there's, should I do more? Could I do more? I want to read you a, a quote from this, this Keller book. It's a little bit long, but it really is helpful for me. Doing justice includes not only righting of wrongs, but generosity and social concern, especially toward the poor and vulnerable. This kind of life reflects the character of God. It consists of a broad range of activities, from simple, fair, and honest dealings with people in daily life, that's just how we live, to regular, radically generous giving of your time and resources, to activism that seeks to end particular forms of injustice, violence, and oppression. There are things I can do every day, just like Job. Robe myself with justice, just in the way that I interact with people. There's things I can do with my time, with my resources. There's some things that God may call me to that's even on a grander scale, to partner with others that are doing things that are changing entire landscapes. But so often, we're just like Israel in the court of law. That we come saying, well, wait, 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 I don't even know what I can do. And if this is what you're expecting, I can't do that. And I just want to say this. You cannot correct every injustice in this world. But you can do something. Don't let what you can't do keep you from doing what you can do. God says, this is what I require. That you would do justice. That you would be generous. That you would care. That you would speak up. That you would stand up. You would show up. That you would make a difference in this world to do justly. You know, the, 
the whole go and be part of our strategy as a church is about this. It's about righting the wrongs. It's about redemption. It's about making things right again, restoring what God originally designed. And there's some things this time of year that we do as a church that collectively we do, but, but the desire is to get us to own this individually, not just to do events as a church. I mean, that's wonderful. And so Skagit, like what you guys have done, going to the school district and asking them to identify the families with the greatest needs, and you've just adopted them this Christmas. Lean into that. Give to that. Pray for that. Volunteer for that. Be with those families. Fantastic. Here in the Bellingham campus, this Wednesday, we get to do the Cornwall at the Mall to, to uh, stock the, 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 the community toy store. This is one of my favorite events of our entire year, this and baptisms. This is one of my absolute favorite events. As we go there and seeing families helping their kids understand, listen, there are other boys and girls that don't have as much as we do, so we're going to help them out. I've told you this every year for the last two or three years. There's a man who comes. He comes to our church. He was here last night. He says to me every year at the mall, with tears in his eyes, I grew up in a single mother home where we were desperately poor, and if it weren't for these kind of situations, we would have never had Christmas. And every year he brings his wife and kids to do this, to, to pass on what he experienced as a child. And it's such a great opportunity to, to start teaching our families, to start practicing steps of justice. And yes, some of the kids are going to cry when they have to relent of their toys, but it builds character in the little brats. And there's good counselors for them later in life. But I just want to encourage you to be a part of that. It's part of what we do. It's a simple way of being generous and helping others. And the impact it will have on lives here in our community. One more thing. In the church, historically, historically, mainline denominations have done really well on the justice piece. The social justice piece. The Methodists, the Presbyterians, the Lutherans, Episcopalians, they've done really well, sometimes at the expense of the spiritual, the evangelistic piece. But they've done really well at the social piece, at the, at the justice piece. Evangelical churches, historically, have done really well at the spiritual piece of salvation and sanctification and Bible study and all that, sometimes at the expense of the justice piece. And the social and the salvation and the justice and the justification and the body and the soul, they're not mutually exclusive. They're sides of the same coin. They're both sides of the coin of redemption, of redeeming this lost world and of redeeming lost souls. And so our desire is to take the best practices of both and implement them here. And so I want to throw out you, to you a challenge. I, we're, what, three weeks away from Christmas, between now and Christmas. I want to throw out a challenge to every single one of you. It's the 5-5 five, five challenge is what we're calling it. The 5-5 five, five challenge. Every single one of you, every man, every woman, every child, every student, everyone in your home, 5-5 five, five challenge. This isn't one for a household. Every single person. Who's this for? Yeah, including, yeah, okay, yeah, you got it. Including everyone. Here's the 5-5 five, five challenge. First one is five pounds. The challenge is everyone loses five pounds between now and Christmas. Everyone, man, woman, child, student, everyone loses five, and some of you can lose more. But everyone lose at least five pounds 
between now and Christmas. Do you know how much that weighs? Can't get nothing past you guys. Every year we do the gift of grub. And the food banks of Skagit County, of Ferndale, and Bellingham depend on Cornwall Church to restock their shelves going into the new year. And I want us to take this to a level we've never done before this year. I want 100% participation, and the minimum level is five pounds. And you're saying, well, we got five people in our family. Do the math. <laughs> Just don't buy Top Ramen. Do refried beans. I want every single person in our church to lose at least five pounds of groceries for our food banks at the gift of grub. And you can do this. And this is a, take your children shopping and say, we're shopping for families that don't have food. Let this be a learning experience. Five pounds. Lose five pounds, every one of you, at least. The other one is five people. Find five people. Five people that you'll pray for and invite to the Christmas Eve service. Not just for the sake of big numbers. Let me tell you why. Because Christmas is about the good news that will be for all the people. And I am already working on and excited about the Christmas Eve sermon. I want to share the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ with as many people as possible. And some of your friends and neighbors are more open to coming to church at Christmas than any other time of year. So we're asking every single one of you, would you find five people, pray for them, and invite them. Use these invitation cards. I just keep a stack of these in my car and in my back pocket so that if I run into someone, it gives me an opportunity to say, hey, Christmas Eve service, love to have you join us. Not all of them are going to come, but that's the challenge. Every single one of us. Lose five pounds, find five people. For the glory of God, do you see? Because when you see, God says you will do. He has showed you, oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God.